Hello and welcome to the Garden History Podcast. My name is Adley Richmond and I'm a garden, landscape and social historian. On the Garden History Podcast, I will be taking you through my A to Z of garden history based on the people, plants, places and features which you might find in and around the subject of garden history. Today is the letter H for Hermitage. In the 18th century, any landscape of note was not complete without a collection of garden buildings and other eclectic features. However, a rather eccentric but short-lived trend during this time resulted in the frequent appearance of the ornamental hermitage. These artificially unkempt dwellings were often concealed in woodland within the landscape and this remoteness ensured a lively response from any visitor who happened upon it, especially if there was a real hermit in residence. The hermitage has its roots deep in early Christianity, where a person would escape the trials and tribulations of the material world and retreat to live in isolation, to contemplate the meaning of life and seek enlightenment. These retreats or hermitages had very little space or comfort and were often as simple as a remote cave or a small shack halfway up a mountain. Fast forward several centuries and hermitages reappeared but this time in the gardens and landscapes of Georgian England. The first ornamental hermitage was for George II's wife, Queen Caroline, in the 1730s. And this was designed by the landscape architect William Kent. It was constructed at Richmond on the site that is now the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. And it was actually built as a ruined structure, complete with a small bell tower. And naturally, on the back of this royal patronage, Hermitages and root houses became all the rage. Back in 1631, the poet John Milton had written two companion poems, later published in 1645. The first was L'Allegro, or The Cheerful Man, which celebrated mirth, the beauty of rural scenery and urban vitality. The second poem, Il Penseroso, or The Pensive Man, invoked the liking of solitude, romantic melancholy and a meditative life. The 18th century popularisation of the hermitage revived Milton's poems, in particular Il Penseroso, which became the most quoted poem for anyone constructing such a feature. A selection of lines alluding to melancholia were often depicted above the door or written on scrolls or tablets to be displayed inside. And this revival brought many more literary efforts on the subject of reflection and solitude, with many such writings running to several much sought-after editions. But any real pretense at any meditative practice soon disappeared 
and hermitages became fashionable garden accessories, while also still feeding into the Georgian idea of solitary retirement and pleasing melancholy. Now, these hermitages were supposedly constructed from whatever materials a hermit might have lying around, such as the odd tree trunk and a bundle of sticks. But in reality, as they became more popular, architecturally designed hermitages could be found in a range of pattern books. A 1767 publication was William Wright's Grotesque Architecture or Rural Amusement, in which he suggested that his designs could be executed with flints, irregular stones, rude branches and the upturned roots of trees. The roof was usually of thatch, moss or heather, and inside the floors were often just bare earth, but depending on the creator's enthusiasm, it could be lined with pebbles, sheep or deer's teeth, and in some cases their knuckle bones for extra creepiness. The amount of furniture varied, again depending on the landowner, but in most cases it was quite rudimentary and included a table with a pile of books, including editions of Milton, a chair, a stool and a cot bed. And these hermitages were used as primitive and picturesque features in the landscape, which contrasted sharply with the more classical garden buildings, such as the rotundas, temples and pavilions. So once your hermitage was completed, you needed a hermit to take up residence. Now, this was easier said than done because the demands upon such an occupant were very restrictive. And odd as it may seem, the most direct way to find your hermit was to put an advert in the local paper and the terms and conditions rarely changed. A standard hermit's contract lasted for seven years, during which time they could not shave, cut their hair or fingernails. Food and drink was brought down from the big house, but the hermit was not allowed to talk or interact with anyone. Once the contract had been fulfilled, the vast sum of between 500 and 700 pounds awaited the successful hermit. Needless to say, most hermits didn't last long under such forced abstinence. Sometimes, in sheer desperation, an unsuspecting gardener was found and appropriated to be a hermit on high days and holidays. Hermits added animation to the landscape whilst creating a little drama for the visitors who were encouraged to peer into the gloomy room through the dusty windows and if they were lucky, they could observe a hermit deep in contemplation. At other times, the hermit might be seated in a pre-arranged manner just inside his little house and on being observed would start to chew a bone while furtively glancing at the onlooker, preferably through dirty matted hair. And a wonderful example of a hermit fiasco was at Paines Hill Park in Surrey, 
where the Honourable Charles Hamilton spent 35 years developing his unique landscape and he created a large serpentine lake with a series of features which included ruins, a grotto, Gothic temple, Chinese bridge, even a Turkish tent. He also constructed that all-important hermitage, which was set in a glade in a distant part of the park. The hermitage was a single-storey thatched building balanced on a tangle of large tree trunks and roots with pointed Gothic windows and a door made out of large branches. On its completion in the late 1740s, Hamilton duly put an advert in the paper for his hermit. The job specification ran as usual, but also stated that no previous experience was needed and £700 would be paid at the end of the seven years. In return, the hermit would be provided with food and drink, a cloak, a Bible, a human skull, spectacles and a hassock for a pillow. Tempted by this huge amount of money, a chap called Mr Remington promptly took up the post. But just as you would expect, this life of filthy solitude was quite hard to bear and three weeks later he was dismissed for improper relations with one of the dairymaids as well as being caught in the local alehouse. Unsurprisingly, this enforced temperance tended to be the downfall of live hermits, so a more practical and inexpensive solution had to be found. So ingenious substitutes made from wax and even clockwork began to appear, and in 1787, Sir Rowland Hill of Hawkston Park in Shropshire solved his particular problem by alternating between a 90-year-old man called Francis and a stuffed dummy, both dressed in monk's habits. But by far the most popular and least troublesome type of hermit was the imaginary one whose presence within the hermitage was constantly alluded to by the sparse furnishings, an hourglass and a half-read book left open on a table, just as if the occupant had stepped out for a brief moment. Inevitably, as with all trends, the fashion for hermitages began to wane. In the 1780s, the waspish social commentator and antiquarian Horace Walpole dealt the final blow when he declared that it was almost comical that people set aside a quarter of their garden to be melancholy in. And sadly, because of the ephemerality of the materials used to construct hermitages, very few have survived the test of time. The best examples of extant hermitages can be found at Babington House in Gloucestershire, which is a root house created in 1747 by the Duke of Beaufort. The other rare survival is at Brocklesby Park in Lincolnshire, constructed in the late 18th century. However, in 2004, a replica of Charles Hamilton's long-lost hermitage at Paynes Hill Park 
was rebuilt to the original design and the performance artist David Blandy was commissioned as a hermit to inhabit the dwelling daily for two weeks. Blandy grew his hair long, went barefoot and donned the orange robes of a Buddhist Shaolin monk. And in silence, his food and water was supplied each day by a Georgian costumed servant. In a contemporary twist, Blandy whiled away the hours listening to 1970s soul music on a portable player, and he kept a diary in the format of a comic book strip. And in assuming the role of a hermit, Blandy said he wanted to demonstrate the loneliness of contemporary society in the seclusion of their homes. Interestingly, in order to protect ourselves and others, Self-isolation has now become widely accepted in the midst of the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic. And consequently, many of us have inadvertently become 21st century hermits. You can see an illustration of the original hermitage at Paynes Hill Park on my podcast page at adfly.co.uk. You may also like to have a look at my pinned tweet at Adley R to see some of the features I covered last year. Thank you for listening to the Garden History Podcast and please join me again for the next episode. Until then, thank you and goodbye. <laughs>